President Biden, you are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Thank you. Slava Ukraine. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The hottest ticket in town last week was in Congress, where Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky delivered a stirring and searing speech to U.S. lawmakers and, indirectly, the American public, seeking more support for his nation, which has fought the Russian war machine with remarkable valor for three weeks. Hailed as masterful and heartbreaking, the speech managed to cast the war in the broader historical context of a fight for democracy and against tyranny. But Zelensky was not able to secure his primary goal of getting Biden to commit to a humanitarian no-fly zone over Ukraine. The other big event in Congress was the passage after months of delay and three continuing resolutions of a $1.5 trillion spending bill to keep the government running. The bill, which the president signed into law midweek, provides $13.6 billion of additional funding for Ukraine and billions more for several domestic spending programs. But the Democrats were forced to agree to drop some $15 billion in additional COVID relief. And that at a time when signs of a new virus wave are coming from Europe and Hong Kong. Looking ahead to this week in the Senate and the confirmation hearings of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, the nominee completed a round of courtesy visits to members of the Judiciary Committee, and she seemed well-positioned to become the first African-American woman to sit on the high court. To break down these Capitol Hill dramas, and their national and international repercussions, we welcome a terrific panel of three of the most accomplished and prominent political commentators in the country. And they are John Lemire, the host of Way Too Early on MSNBC and a political analyst for both that network and NBC News. He's also the White House Bureau Chief at Politico. His book, The Big Lie, Election Chaos, Political Opportunism, and the State of American Politics After 2020 is due to be published in July of 2022. Before joining Politico, John was White House reporter at the Associated Press, covering both the Trump and now the Biden administrations. John Lemire, thank you so much for returning to Talking Feds. Uh, Sorry for such a long title there. Sung Min Kim, a first-time guest at Talking Feds, a White House reporter for the Washington Post, where she covers the Biden administration and its relationship with Capitol Hill. She joined the Post in 2018, so we were briefly colleagues. Before that, she spent more than eight years at Politico, covering the Senate and immigration policy. She is a frequent guest on CNN and PBS Washington Week as a political analyst. So pleased to welcome you, Sung Min. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. And Dana Bash, CNN's chief political correspondent and co-anchor of State of the Union, 
the network Sunday morning newsmaker show. She regularly serves as a moderator for CNN's political town hall specials and presidential debate and anchored special coverage of election nights. In 2017, Dana launched her CNN series, Badass Women of Washington, which features women from a wide range of backgrounds and generations and their different efforts to shatter glass ceilings on their ways up the ranks. Dana Bash, such a pleasure to welcome you back to Talking Feds. It's good to be here. Thank you. All right. So the dramatic centerpiece of the week was the address to the U.S. Congress by Ukrainian President Zelensky, including a searing video montage of the horrors Russia is visiting on Ukraine. On one level, it seemed a kind of stirring success, but Zelensky came with an ask for creation of a so-called humanitarian no-fly zone over Ukraine. And here he seems to have come up short. So let's begin. Is a humanitarian no-fly zone just a polite term for war with Russia, basically off the table? It's off the table for now because the argument that President Biden and his fellow Democrats and Republicans are largely making in Congress is that the minute that a NATO flight or a, you know, an American pilot flying with NATO is shot at, that equals war. And that happens all the time with no-fly zones. We've seen that throughout modern history with this attempt to help other countries. And so that certainly is the reluctance. You are hearing some experts, some former military, more, I think, on the diplomatic side, arguing for the kind of thing that President Zelensky asked for, which is a limited no-fly zone, just to make sure that humanitarian assistance is given, kind of like a a Berlin airlift combined with a no-fly zone situation. But there's really nobody, even those who, who are suggesting that, who think that that will not ultimately end up in a war, end up with a NATO aircraft being shot at or maybe even shot down by the Russians. And then the question is, then what? And that's the big fear. I'm no great expert on law of war, but if you're doing a humanitarian no-fly zone, but you get yourself shot at, then you have to respond. And I think that is an act of war. So let me follow up. And John, you wrote that the address puts more pressure on Biden to expand the U.S. role. But if the no-fly zone is off the table, what options does it leave him? Put more pressure to do what exactly? He ponied up an extra $800 million immediately. What within the realm of possibility is he now under pressure to do that he's not doing? He's also been reluctant to send over these, these MiGs, these Polish jets that we've spent so much time about, these older equipment Congress was hoping that he would send. He has basically said no, that he feels like that would also be considered escalation. There was some real anxiety in the State Department and Pentagon when the Polish sort of agreed this on their own, with building it through the U.S. The president has nixed that as well, and, it, and pointing out that these jets are so old, they may not be that helpful anyway. The case administration has made is that we're doing what you need. We are sending you these weapons, stingers, javelins, and so on, that are the most effective tools to take out Russian jets or tanks or whatever it might be. So I think you're going to see more pressure, certainly, on him to keep the, the flow of cash and weapons going as well as there are a few more economic levers that he can pull as well, including sanctions on Russia's energy industry, which is really the lifeblood of that economy where Putin made his own fortune. That's certainly coming. The import on oil and gas has already happened. 
your p allies didn't go along with that. Uh, but there's going to be more and more pressure. And just now, today, President Biden is speaking to China's Xi Jinping, trying to get Beijing to also lean on Moscow and deprive Putin of perhaps his best ally. Right. But, Sungmin, it's not what one might have expected at the beginning, a kind of quick blitzkrieg. And it seems, in fact, that we're settling into this long slog of a war potentially. So are we looking at these kind of continual cycles of just Russia keeps advancing? We have round after round of these pretty big supply and money infusions to Ukraine. Right. So, I mean, obviously right now it's hard to predict what the end game is. I think there is certainly some evidence that particularly the economic sanctions are hurting Russia and hopefully putting pressure on Vladimir Putin that way. But I think just the lack of clarity kind of all around as to what's going to happen at the end is what is also flummoxing the Biden administration. And I think as the conflict continues, certainly there's going to be an increasing pressure from Congress. And you've seen how this repeated bipartisan push from members on Capitol Hill has certainly pushed the Biden administration on a a certain number of sanctions, whether it's the ban on Russian oil imports, obviously the trade sanctions that the House has cleared and that the Senate is poised to clear in the coming days was certainly a push that was led by Congress that kind of forced the Biden administration to take unilateral action. I'm kind of looking at the domestic politics and kind of the dynamics here that affect his capabilities abroad. At the start, you did sort of see abroad a support for what the president was doing, what his administration was doing abroad. And I do think you're starting to see much more of a fissure on Capitol Hill. Um, You are seeing a much more uh, pointed attacks, particularly from Republicans, saying the president isn't going far enough to aid the Ukrainians. And it remains to be seen how much the kind of waning bipartisan support for what the U.S. commander in chief is doing is going to impact his capabilities abroad. I mean, it's kind of ironic. You knew there'd be a fissure. That's that's the Republicans' job. But you could have seen it almost from the other direction. But now they're back in hawkish garb. So Sungman says that the sanctions are hurting Putin. And there have been, I think, 7,000-plus Russian casualties killed in the war. The conventional wisdom has been to date, he'll double down, double down, double down. So do we think now that it's really going to cause him to back down? Is there any more reason, let me put it this way, any more reason to think that than we had three weeks ago? I mean, I'll take that with a simple answer, which is no. And that's based on talking to diplomats in and and from the region, those who are really experts on Putin, those who have spent time with Putin. First and foremost, the economic sanctions are big and they're sweeping. But like John said, it's the energy sanctions. That's a biggie that has not been used yet, certainly not been used beyond the United States and really also with regard to the central bank. But your first question about the no-fly zone, doesn't that just mean war? Yes, maybe, but there is more and more pressure, which again is what John and Sungman were talking about, on President Biden that like, not a so what if, if the U.S. gets involved in war, but if we, the Western world, the free world doesn't stop Putin now, then what? And there is no indication that he is deterred by what has happened so far. And certainly, just to add to that, U.S. officials aren't seeing any degree of seriousness from the Russians on these talks. There's negotiations 
have some sort of ceasefire. And even when there have been some signals from, say, Foreign Minister Lavrov about it, he's undermined hours later from Putin, the Kremlin, who is doubling down on, on the uh, aggression. And right now, at least, U.S. officials believe that any even talk of these negotiations, that they have had a few meetings between the Russians and Ukrainians, is really a stall tactic to allow the Russians to better resupply and refortify their advancing troops. Do both of you, Sungman and Dan, agree with that? Because it's a little bizarre. It wasn't just at the diplomatic level, but Zelensky himself made nice noises as if there was progress, as did the Soviet foreign minister. Does uh, everyone agree that it's just a complete sideshow and a theater piece? The the answer is yes. But the question is, how long would that stalling last? I've talked to some people who think if there is a real ceasefire, temporary ceasefire. And let's just say, I'm just throwing this out there as things that have been talked about, that Zelensky agrees to formally say Crimea is part of Russia, that the Donbass region is part of Russia. And no, we're not going to pursue NATO acceptance. Let's just say that that's something that Zelensky agrees to. There's absolutely no indication that that is true, but just for argument's sake. And that Russia says, we're going to stop bombing you. Nobody thinks that Putin is going to say, "Okay, I'm going to go back to Moscow and I'm going to go to my dacha and I'm going to, you know, go eat my caviar. Like, it's not going to happen. He's going to reconstitute his military and he's going to look at the next at the next front. And so then the question is, what will the West have to agree to with Putin in addition to what Ukraine agrees to with regard to lifting some of those sanctions? And there's a big push for in this hypothetical scenario to not lift those sanctions in order to deter him from reconstituting. Let me take it from the other direction, which is upping the game from Putin. So, Dana, you had a really interesting interview with Jake Sullivan talking about Putin's at least flirting in some way with some use of nuclear weapons. A couple quick questions on that. First, we, the U.S., haven't changed our own state of nuclear preparedness. Does that mean that the operating assumption of the U.S. government is this is just a different kind of Putin posturing? He's talking tough, but it's not really on the table in any real way for now. They don't think that it's not on the table. They think that it's on the table and not increasing the American nuclear posture is all about not taking the bait on the escalation. As soon as the U.S., does that, then it's a completely different ballgame with regard to how Putin perceives all of this. It's like 1969 all of a sudden, right? No, it's crazy. It's really, it's really crazy. And the other thing I'll just quickly add, and, and you guys can chime in about what you've heard from your sources, is that when you think nuclear, you think like giant mushroom cloud, right? But it's not necessarily the case. He's got much smaller tactical nuclear weapons that he could potentially use if he feels backed into a corner or if he just like wakes up in the morning and had a bad night's sleep. Right. And I think the one thing I would add is that if Putin decides to go that far in Ukraine, obviously up with at least some members of Congress, that would certainly change their calculus on how aggressive the U.S. should be involved. I mean, I think it was interesting to note that Senator Lindsey Graham, obviously a critic of the Biden administration on many things, but has agreed with the president on uh, opposing a no-fly zone for now. He told us uh, reporters on Capitol Hill that should uh, Putin use chemical weapons, his mind would most likely change on how aggressive the U.S. should get involved, particularly in enforcing a no-fly zone in the region. And adding to that, it's beyond even these tactical nuclear weapons, is that the U.S. is so careful 
not to do anything to, that Putin could claim as an escalation. That, that it's all about having him having the pretense to go further, which is why they're limited to no fly zone, why they're being so careful to, to not cross Ukrainian borders, you know, things of that nature. They just want to make sure that they don't give Putin any kind of excuse to go further, while at the same time warning that Putin might create that excuse on his own with some sort of false flag. It's- yeah, I mean, especially since that's how the war started was this, you know, spurious claim by Putin of uh, aggression on the other side. But I was really struck with Dana's point. I mean, I've grown up thinking we all have one day maybe the world ends with the next nuclear attack and the big mushroom cloud. But this possibility of a new nuclear age with limited nuclear weapons. So we cross this Rubicon in a way, but maybe it doesn't lead to World War III. Let me just ask, in the same category as limited nuclear weapons in terms of what they provoke from the U.S., also chemical weapons, if he goes that route, do we have the same very severe, as Jake Sullivan told Dana, response? It would certainly seem that way. But it's a decision made. It would depend what it is. I mean, the use of chemical weapons have been used before and did not generate yep. a Western response in Syria and other places. So certainly, I mean, the posture that the United States is taking would indicate that. But I, I think they are reserving the right to make a decision until they see what happens. That's just the whole reality of it for fear of further escalation. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we crack open the topic of aging wine in traditional oak barrels versus stainless steel tanks. There are many types of oak from various countries. But in general, oak is the most pliable wood, great for forming a barrel and even better for storing liquids. Oak barrels have a limited life cycle, though, whereas stainless steel can be used over and over, point for stainless. There's also new oak, which has a tendency to give wine the complexities that make it interesting, adding spice aromas such as coconut and vanilla, or even hints of allspice and cinnamon. On the other hand, old oak doesn't pick up much flavor, but it does give the wine a softer texture. Stainless steel, on the other hand, is exactly what you'd expect. Clean and contemporary, adding little to the wine, in a good way, that is. Wines aged in stainless tanks are crisp and focused, allowing the fresh fruit flavor to shine for the truest expression of the grape. So, who wins in oak versus stainless? Why not pick up one of each at your local Total Wine and you decide? And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's focus for a second on Putin. So the two main portraits you heard is madman and completely incalculable what he's thinking, if he's even thinking anything. Does he have a endgame at all? Or sometimes a minority view, you know, tactical genius and completely implacable will go to the end. The psychological profile of the man you think you're dealing with is going to really influence your policy. So my question is, after three weeks, do we have any clear or any different picture of the Russian president than we did before? I think that his reputation as a tactical genius has really taken a hit. The Russian military has struggled to a degree that was not anticipated by anyone. It seems that you know morale is low among the troops. The equipment is 
more hated and breaking down than expected. Certainly, he anticipated a quick victory, a lightning strike victory, and thought that Russians might even they could topple Kiev and the Russians would perhaps even be hailed as liberators by many of the Ukrainian people. None of that has happened. And certainly, U.S. officials also just, they wonder more and more about just how isolated Putin really is now. That we know that for two years during the pandemic, he has largely sequestered himself. You know, we've all seen the long table. He sits on one end and his, even his closest, closest aides sit uh, not close at all on the other end. And there is a sense that he's not getting realistic intelligence from his people. The generals are either out of touch or afraid to deliver him bad news. So I think there, there's a sense that he is perhaps miscalculating because he's misinformed. And we also know he's driven by this belief that Ukraine is not a real country, that it should be united with Russia. He wrote that very long essay about it a year ago, and that is fueling this as well. I, I totally agree. I mean, what I've been hearing is the isolation. The isolation is really the thing that is most stark and maybe stunning and most dangerous. That long table is such a metaphor for so much of what we're seeing. And it's maybe COVID paranoia, paranoia of being poisoned. He knows that there's poison out there, not too far away from him because he's used it on his political opponents. So that's a real thing. It's really fascinating. What I've been told is that despite the fact that here we are using the most modern technology, just even right the second to communicate with each other, to put this podcast together. And that obviously Vladimir Putin has that capability, but he doesn't use it. He really relies in an old school way on his generals, on his top advisors to sort of hand him reports. And because of that, it is a question of, just like you said, John, whether or not they're writing it through rose-colored glasses, to mix my metaphors here, because they're afraid of their own future. Like if they say, Mr. President, here's the reality of what's happening on the battleground, he might say, this is your job. What what did you do? You're fired or I'm going to off you or whatever it is. So there's so many dynamics at play here. And there is so much that is unknown. But one thing does seem to be becoming more clear, which is you mentioned Lindsey Graham Sungman, this notion of trying to encourage anybody who's around Putin to potentially take him out. Remember, the minute that happens, it's not just Putin who is in danger. It's the oligarchs. It's the elite. It's those who have benefited from Putin's Russia all these years who also are in danger. And they are the ones who are close enough to do something like that. So that's why it, it appears pretty unlikely. That's why it appears pretty unlikely that there'd be any kind of push from within the Kremlin. Somebody said to me, who again, a diplomat who, who knows Russia well, that it would have to come from the streets. And in the short term, that is not that likely, given the way that Putin has completely, I mean, he rewrote the Constitution in 2020. He rewrote it so that he amassed even more power than he had before. And the people who are looking at this think that it's possible that he has even more power than the Soviet leaders, because at least there was the Politburo then, and that doesn't exist now. I think people here don't understand just how massive a political uprising you would need there in order for the, you know, oligarchs or whomever to even begin discussing uh, it. I just want to second John's point because it's a kind of classic pattern in history that if he's isolated and only with yes man and anyone who tells him otherwise, like a Bond villain, he gets fed to the piranhas, you know, is not a good decision-making posture when you're at conflict with the world. 
I wanted to close out and go back to Sung Min's thoughts about how this affects the U.S. political landscape heading into the midterms. So John talked about the pressure this puts on Biden. Are the administration's actions here in spite of or basically because of their political consequences at home? And how are both parties positioning themselves, especially since it's starting to look as if the war isn't going to end very soon at all? They have to be thinking about their position maybe going all the way to the campaign season. Well, I mean, first of all, obviously, White House officials will tell you, and they certainly told us, that the political calculation isn't at the foremost of their minds. But with that said, I think that they are certainly seeing this just as a boon for Biden, even on his handling of the Ukraine crisis, hasn't quite borne that out yet. They say this is the reason why he was kind of the right man for the right time in terms of bringing our European allies together, trying to show a force of stability in a time of complete chaos. And obviously, in terms of some of the domestic problems that he has faced, this has given the Biden administration a scapegoat to, for example, blame Putin on gas prices, even though Republicans, and I'm not sure voters would quite buy that argument in the first place. Generally speaking, you know, foreign policy isn't often a motivating issue for voters, but I think it's so hard to tell. I mean, we don't know how long this conflict is going to go on for. We don't know how it's going to play in the minds of voters when they go to the polls in November. But I think the one kind of fundamental issue is that the fate of the midterms obviously is going to ride so much on Biden's personal approval ratings, on his handling of the presidency. And in that sense, obviously, that will leave an impact his handling of this later in November. Sticking with you for a moment, Sungman, you say that they see it as a boon. Are they wary of a prolongation of the war that, you know, after a while, people will lose their you know, idealistic support of Ukraine and and focus more on on the gas prices or whatever? Or are they, is it hunky-dory with them if we just keep going in this mode for months? I think they are cautious and wary. I think they are aware that a lot of the early reactions, even from some of their biggest critics on Capitol Hill, is sort of that rally around the flag, rally around the president of the United States moment or dynamic that often comes in times of international crises. I mean, we're already seeing, like we discussed earlier, the partisan knives kind of start to come out for the Biden administration and their actions. And I don't think it's a stretch to assume that the longer this goes on, sort of the public's patience and particularly patients from lawmakers on Capitol Hill, certainly Republicans, but even some Democrats who've been critical of the Biden administration not going far enough in assisting Ukraine. The political's situation certainly could deteriorate for President Biden as long as this continues. I just want to throw one thing in the mix. You know, we are very cynical about most political maneuvers, but it does strike me as plausible anyway that Biden would take this as his moment in history and really decide this is what his whole career has been pointing toward, this kind of international intervention, and he would be doing it. Politics be damned. I'm not sure there'd be voices in the White House talking him out of it or trying to, but I'm just wondering your thoughts about the political landscape for both parties, especially in the midterms, and then to the extent it differs, Biden himself. I think that right now is this remarkable, and it really is remarkable sense of moral clarity that is largely uniting a country that has been so fractured and so divided. I want to be an optimist and say that it's going to continue. I don't necessarily have a lot of hope that that will happen. The reality of people not being able to 
put gas in their car without it being a very, very big economic toll to not be able to buy things because they don't exist. Supply chain issues are still a big problem. And then the things that they can buy are just more expensive. That's big. And I also, just as a mom myself and just as an observer of my cohort, so to speak, I would not underestimate the residual resentment from parents, the kind of resentment that we saw help sweep Glenn Youngkin into the governor's mansion in Virginia. I know that there's a big hope that by the time November comes, that will be, in the words of one politician to me, that will be like a trauma that voters experienced and have forgotten. But I'm not so sure that that's the case. I know people who have been historically apolitical who are so worked up about the school situation and the politics of the mask situation for their kids that they have become political. And if that is more of a thing, particularly in suburbs where these districts will determine the balance of power in the House, that could be a big problem for Democrats. Yeah. And this is off point, but I just want to note, while everything's been going on in Ukraine, it hasn't stopped other political landscapes, including voting rights in the last few weeks in Florida and Texas. They've really advanced in a way that could have seismic effects. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's topic is statutes of limitations, which always hover in the background of any criminal investigation. But it's especially pertinent now because the possible crimes by then-President Trump that special counsel Robert Mueller uncovered and described in his report are about to become time-barred. That is, the relevant statutes of limitations are about to run their course. And to explain what statutes of limitations are, we are very pleased to welcome Kyle Riabko. Kyle's career has included a bit of everything from songwriting to touring to producing to acting on Broadway and television to creating an acclaimed off-Broadway and West End show. He starred in the first tour of the Broadway rock musical Spring Awakening, as well as the hit revival of Hair. Most recently, Kyle created and starred in What's It All About? Baccarat Reimagined at New York Theater Workshop. So I give you Kyle Riabko on Statutes of Limitations. What are Statutes of Limitation? A statute of limitation is a law that seeks to encourage the prompt filing of legal claims by setting the maximum time within which a legal case may begin. Statutes of limitation apply to the initiation of both civil disputes and criminal prosecutions. They generally begin to run as soon as all the conduct that gives rise to a civil claim under the law has occurred. That's when an injury legally happens, or when a crime has been completed. When a claim is time-barred, that generally means it's dead, however meritorious it might be. Time bars on claims can have serious ramifications on litigants. Take the statute for certain federal antitrust lawsuits, which provides that suits are forever barred unless commenced within four years after the cause of action accrued. Four years might sound like a lot of time, but as Porcupine Tree once put it, after a while, you realize time flies. So why do lawmakers impose time bars that may make it harder for wrongs to be righted? It's about fairness and efficiency. 
As time passes, evidence grows stale. Memories fade, emails get deleted, old documents are shredded in line with normal business practices, and key witnesses may die or move away, making it impossible to bring them into the case. Time bars on claims make it more likely that relevant evidence will be available and complete. Time bars also remove the threat of liability after a specified period, providing closure and certainty for those who might be sued or prosecuted. Life is short, and at some point, it's only fair that even someone who wronged another can put the fear of a suit behind them. Statutes of limitation vary greatly based on both jurisdiction and the nature of the dispute or offense. For criminal prosecutions, the time available to the government tends to be longer the more serious the criminal conduct. For example, while the general federal statutes of limitation for felonies is five years, there is no time limit for prosecuting federal sex crimes, crimes punishable by death, or certain terrorism offenses. For Talking Feds, I'm Kyle Riapko. Thank you very much, Kyle Riapko, for explaining statutes of limitations. Kyle released a few years ago an original EP entitled Holding My Breath, and he is currently performing solo shows across the country. So let's move to Capitol Hill, a pretty eventful week in Congress. Biden signed a $1.5 trillion spending bill to fund the federal government. Lots of increases in domestic programs, aid to Ukraine, but only after last minute maneuvers, stripping out billions of dollars in COVID relief. Democrats were jubilant and there were 100 plus votes from House Republicans. Didn't even go down to the final, final hour. Let's start there. What happened to the intractable partisan Congress? And does this suggest some kind of further bipartisan action or is it so, was it a one-off? I will say um, it, it was a major accomplishment for the Congress to come to this funding agreement, but they also, this is the basic function of Congress. So I wouldn't give them too many pats on the back for being able to actually fund the government and keep it running, especially when it's the appropriations bill for this current fiscal year. So I don't think they were doing amazing things here. But with that said, with just how toxic it can be on Capitol Hill these days, and particularly for the last several years, it is an accomplishment that Democrats did want to tout. Obviously, it was a big bipartisan effort. It wasn't very pretty. It was actually a pretty messy process. And the way that congressional leadership, particularly Speaker Nancy Pelosi, decided to resolve the issue of additional coronavirus aid is certainly causing a lot of headaches for her party, for Democrats down the road. So basically, the position that we're in now, because of a revolt from a few House Democrats, a handful of House Democrats, but certainly enough to sink the broader package in the House, considering the margins that Speaker Pelosi has there, Speaker Pelosi did have to strip about $15 billion of additional coronavirus aid that the administration had asked for, which was actually $7 billion less than what they had asked for because a concern from House Democrats about how that package was paid for. And now the focus is trying to move this as what we call a standalone in Congress, trying to move that separately. But um, there's a reason why these bills are 2,700 pages that, that barely anyone has read, why you try to stuff 
everything in here because it is kind of the big last train leaving the station, particularly in an election year. And it is going to be infinitely harder, if not almost impossible, for Congress to come up with an additional coronavirus funding package that the administration has said over and over for the last several days that this is an urgent need. Uh, It is going to be very, very difficult for Congress to move this in a way that gets 10 Republican votes in the Senate and nearly all Senate Republicans, with the exception of maybe one or two, have insisted that whether it's $15 billion, $22 billion, or whatever the figure is, that it has to be paid for and that the administration has to give a more thorough accounting of how pandemic relief, pandemic aid has been used. Ed Young, writing in The Atlantic, called this a disaster. The $15 billion for all kinds of medical, basically, preparedness for COVID. And Ron Klain, the chief of staff, said we may have a new wave coming from Hong Kong and Europe. How big a fix is the country in, in terms of pandemic preparedness? Uh, We may be in a significant trouble. This unfortunately always seems to happen when we think we've turned the corner on COVID. COVID says not so fast. And certainly the truism of the pandemic is whatever happens in Europe seems to show up here a few weeks later. And they're having surging cases just this week. Germany reported more positive cases than any other day during the entirety of the pandemic, this new more transmissible variant of Omicron. And I think it, it could arrive here on these shores, and this is the administration officials I've talked to about this, you know, at a moment where people who got boosters, that immunity may be waning. You know, we've seen obviously mask mandates dropped pretty much nationally, and we may be in, in a moment more vulnerable. And it's, it's the tricky balancing act for the White House, which is trying to prepare for that and, and it has wanted to use a lull, which we're, you know, in at least for the moment, to prepare for the next possible wave. At the same time, wanting to project this idea of Americans returning to normalcy. They, they definitely want that. They right. want people right. to feel comfortable going back to not just school, but going back to the office and sort of resuming their lives in some way. But this week you know, it underscores that we're not quite through with this as there's been two close calls with the president himself and the coronavirus at the White House this week. How much can the administration do without Congress here? The Progressive Caucus is calling on him to do executive action. But, you know, Congress, it's in the Constitution. It's they appropriate the money and $15 billion. You just can't shake loose from the couches. What kinds of options, if any, will the administration have if a new wave hits our shores? He's limited. But it seems to me that if a new wave hits in a way that's really robust, that it will be easier for Nancy Pelosi to shake the the money out of the people who are reluctant in the first place. Part of the issue that the administration has is that we, <laughs> we're a fast food nation with a very short attention span. And to be fair, I mean, Congress has passed a lot of money. And so to get even $15 billion, which in the grand scheme of things isn't that much, but when you're looking at how much they've spent, it is quite a bit. So the administration is going to have to rely on them to, from their perspective, do the right thing if another wave really does hit in an intense way. And they have a little bit of good fortune here that Romney's been leading the charge. He authors the letter to Biden saying, you know, we want an accounting because he is statesmanlike. And, you know, if, if truly people are dying, you have to imagine he relents on this. Let's give us a full accounting charge. Okay, I wanted to take a few minutes to sort of preview the confirmation hearings coming next week. So 
Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Hearings will begin on Monday. She's been having these one-on-one meetings with the key senators on judiciary and preparing. I've participated in this process before, you know, and I can say there's murder board after murder board and people doing their best imitations of different key senators within the White House and Department of Justice. Let's just start here. What's shaping up to be the major points of contention that she'll have to deal with? Am I right that there's no real argument about competence and the Republicans or opponents will have to come up with something else? And if so, what might that something else be? Right. No one has disputed her qualifications and her credential to be on the Supreme Court. And I think Republican senator after Republican senator has emphasized that not only was she very pleasant to sit within their office for about, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, that she certainly knows the law, that she is certainly experienced. And even Mitch McConnell this week in an interview said she is highly likely to be confirmed. I don't think trying to prevent her confirmation is really the battle that they're litigating here at this point, considering the near inevitability of her getting confirmed. So what Republicans have tried to do, and they really kind of struggled to latch on on a uniform strategy. I think I talked with about, you know, 15 or 16 Republican senators, aides, outside advisors this week on just kind of what their plan, what their strategy is. And there really isn't a cohesive one as of yet. And maybe something can emerge at the confirmation hearings on Monday. But to the extent that there's there has been one kind of common thread or a common theme. It's been an assertion or some sort of an implication that she is somehow soft on crime, weak on crime. And a lot of it comes from the fact that she was a federal public defender. If she's confirmed, she would be the first federal public defender to sit on the Supreme Court, aside from the history of obviously being the first Black woman to be a Supreme Court justice. But Republicans have really made this an issue going back to her D.C. Circuit confirmation hearing last year. And then obviously we'll discuss that this year. But what the White House has done is really anticipate these attacks. So every single time, you know, Mitch McConnell says something about a soft on crime brigade or Josh Hawley says something about Guantanamo Bay detainees and her representation of them, what they've been able to do is say, well, the Fraternal Order of Police and a bunch of other law enforcement groups have endorsed her. She comes from a law enforcement family. A host of national security officials can testify to her experience in that area and her fairness in that area. Regardless of that, I think you're still going to hear a lot of that from several of the members of, of the Senate Judiciary Committee, particularly the Republicans who are angling for a national run, perhaps as early as in 2024. Yeah, I mean, this is a very good point. So there are different agendas. I think McConnell signals it's not going to be any kind of bloodbath indeed. And I find this galling, but I think they're going to say, look, we're going to show how nice we are as opposed to how mean you guys were with Kavanaugh and the like. I think a peaceful or relatively uneventful confirmation process already takes as a given that the Hollies of the world will beat the table on different issues, but it won't take hold of the caucus overall. I mean, there's usually a war of anecdotes here. She served on the district court for nine years. There are going to be a few cases where it's quote unquote soft on crime and the the White House will try to counter with the broader issue. Let me ask you, this is going to be the fastest confirmation hearing process ever, except for Amy Coney Barrett. And there, there was a reason, of course, that they played hurry up. Why are the Dems so anxious to get it done so fast? And does the White House 
share the sort of hurry up attitude of the Senate. It's a 50-50 Senate. And we saw with Senator Lujan, very young man, having a stroke. He luckily is, yeah. is okay and he's back. And we also, some of us here are old enough to remember what happened when Senator Kennedy passed away and the blue, blue, blue state of Massachusetts suddenly had a Republican senator and the Democrats lost their 60 vote majority and made Obamacare much more difficult to pass. So that's a long way of saying it's precarious and just get it done and don't wait around. Got it. All right. Close out question here. You know, it is starting to look like pretty smooth sailing for her. Are there any senators you're watching as indicators of possible troubled waters as you look at what's shaping up to be an uneventful few days? Well, in terms of senators to watch, and maybe not necessarily uh, signs of trouble, but I do think it is always worth watching people like Senator Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, um, in terms of what they will do and how they will be informed by the arguments put forward by the Republican senators, Democratic senators, and of course, the nominee herself at the hearing. You know, obviously, the White House does not need Republicans to have Judge Jackson confirmed to the Supreme Court, but they would certainly like bipartisan support. And what was remarkable about Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation in fall of 2020, that I believe it was the first time in about 150 years that there was not a bipartisan vote for a Supreme Court justice. It's not exactly a badge of honor, and I'm sure the White House would like to avoid that for Judge Jackson if possible. Mitt Romney is someone who has, even though he voted against her for the D.C. Circuit Court, that he is genuinely weighing her nomination. He does understand the historic nature of what this confirmation would mean, and he is very much thinking about that as he considers her bid for the Supreme Court. But in terms of senators to watch, obviously, I do think that while Senator Chuck Grassley will lead whatever the strategy may be on the Republican side for what the party will do, a lot of the Republican narrative will be driven by, again, the 2024 and beyond contenders on that committee. And there are many on that committee. It's Josh Hawley of Missouri, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Ted Cruz of Texas, and even people like Ben Sass of Nebraska. And I think they will be trying to drive a lot of the conversation and the political narrative that emerges about Judge Jackson after the hearing. All right. More to come next week. We just have a minute or two left for our final feature of Talking Five, where we take a question from a listener. And each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. This week's question from Simon Kassar is, The big brouhaha the week, of course, the permanent daylight savings bill that the Senate passed. So here's the question. What is the best slash worst thing about permanent daylight savings time? There's a hardball for you guys. Five words or fewer. Morning show hosts hate this. (laughs) (laughs) Great point. Here's the other constituency. Yeah, you and and the farmers. It's like the 70s for you. Perfect. Okay. Sorry, John, but I think it's bring it on. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well lit commute home. That's four words. <laughs> but it'll be dark when you go to work. Maybe. I don't know. Loved playing outside as boy. Okay. Sad to say we are out of time. Thank you very much to Sungmin Kim, John Lemire, and Dana Bash. And thank you very much, listeners for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. 
A reminder that we are available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we do have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. In just the last few days, we've posted discussions with former National Institute of Mental Health Director Tom Insell about President Biden's mental health care plan, and former DOJ prosecutor and supervisor Christy Parker about the trial and conviction, about the first trial and conviction of a January 6th defendant. So there's a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we've got and decide if you might like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, Associate Producer Olivia Henriksen, Assistant Producer Matt McArdle, Sound Engineering by Adam Macias, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production Assistants by Ria Cohn Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Kyle Riabko for explaining statutes of limitations in today's sidebar. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.